Lord Jesus, we just come before you, and we, we prepare our hearts to to receive from you today. In the in the midst of a chaotic culture that just keeps pushing us forward and pushing us forward, as our calendars fill up with parties and and uh, invites, could we just pause here for a moment and hear your voice and be reminded that your gospel message is so beautiful and so simple and that it comes to us as a little baby born in a manger. I pray that you would come. We give this time to you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Thank you, Billy. Good morning. How are we doing? All right. Uh, it seems like between doing, uh, between decking the halls, cutting out cookies, picking up the perfect present, and keeping up with the Kringles, Christmas turns into something, anything other than time of comfort and joy. I don't know about you, but when I got married, Christmas became this fun and exciting thing that we could participate in. You can answer it if you want. Oh, I'm just kidding. It becomes exhausting. I remember when we first got married, I, mo- I went up to my wife's family. And just so you know, my wife has um, a sister, two half-brothers from two different sides, and four step-brothers. And you can just imagine the, the diversity of family with that. But we would go on the family tour, and it was absolutely exhausting, where you jet around literally like 200 miles in one day for four different Christmases. That's what my early Christmas experience was like. And I don't know about you, but it seems like when, when Christmas morning comes, it just flies by. And what Christmas is really about, we, we seem to miss the story of Jesus in the midst of all the chaos and confusion and anxiety and stress that this season puts upon us. It seems like Our society and culture tells the story of Christmas more than we do. The meaning of Christmas is often lost in the midst of everything we see. You know, there are over 2,000 advertisements given to us every single day. 2,000 advertisements. America alone spends over $450 billion every year on Christmas. America alone spends over $450 billion on Christmas stuff during this holiday season. Some people believe that to solve all the world's problems, all of the world's problems, it would take $100 billion. Less than a quarter of what we spend on Christmas every single year. 2,000 advertisements, it seems like advertisers create this culture of Christmas What we want is what we see. And we're given plenty of images nowadays. It seems like the American dream is about acquiring, consuming, and accumulating more and more and more stuff. I want to show you two quick videos just that kind of help us understand this Christmas season. Check this out. Let's start that over. This is really important. Yesterday, breath smells better. I need coffee. Why did you early for special? Not today. Black Friday, Black Friday. Go to clothes on Black Friday. Everybody's going to 
Are you ready? Are you ready? Our culture pumps these advertisements into our daily life that make us prepare for the Christmas season on Thanksgiving. Does anyone else think this is absolutely crazy? That the culture we're surrounded in, that we participate in, is a culture that says to prepare for Christmas is to create a list and train for Friday night shopping at 12 a.m. to get the right deal at the right price. Advent is about preparing for Jesus. Christmas, though, has become a season of anxiety, stress, and survival. And a story told by South Coast Plaza, Hollywood media, and retail stores. This morning, I just wanted to ask one question. Look at the simple story found in Luke of Christmas and what this season really is all about. And uh, here's the question I want to ask. When you reflect on your life during this Christmas season, which story are you living out? Is it the one that's riddled with anxiety and stress and consumption and self-focus, accumulation, Or is it one of peace and joy, of hope, of simplicity, of worship, of generosity, hospitality, justice, and love? Which story are you living in? You know, we're going to look at the book of Luke. So if you you have a Bible, go to Luke real quick. We'll start in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some green Bibles and somebody might be kind enough to pass it out. Lala will pass it out. Hold your hand up and we'll get you a Bible. But we're going to look at a story today. Um, But before we get to Luke chapter 1, you can go to Luke chapter 1. I want to give you an introduction. Imagine you are living in the first century. You've grown up in this small country that for centuries have been occupied by foreign rulers. For centuries and centuries though you've built out of your tradition, out of your family, out of your history, out of this worldview that there was an idea, and the idea was this, that in your story, in your family's story, God selected your ancestors, your great, 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 great grandparents. He freed them from slavery and said to your ancestors, if you... Obey my commandments and live the way I invite you to live in. Then you will be for me a people of, of, that set apart a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. If you do that, then you will exist for a greater purpose. This is built into the tradition that you're living in 2,000 years ago. That you're, you're, you have this, this, this history of God freeing your family and setting them apart. To be an example for the rest of the world to see. 
and your, your, your parents told you about this, but your parents also told you about something that also happened somewhere along the lines in history. You're a great, 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 great grandparents. And in between them and your great, 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 great grandparents, something went awfully wrong. Your family didn't live out the way it was intended to live out life. They didn't obey the commandments. They didn't follow the teachings of God. And God could not allow that to happen, so He brought judgment and punishment. He brought foreign rulers to occupy this select nation, this promised land. And you were no longer the example of what it meant to be a kingdom of priests. A people that is set apart for something far bigger than yourself. But in your story, in the way you saw the world 2,000 years ago, you saw it through a lens that God was going to come back again in time. And He was going to redeem what was broken by your ancestors. He was going to restore what was lost by your family members. He was going to, again, save you from these foreign rulers, from this broken way of life. And He was going to restore it once and for all. And then you would live once and for all as a restored people, living as you, the way you were intended to live in the first place, with God as king. That God was going to do this. You, you have writers that you followed that, that dreamed of this in history. They talked about a time of peace, but you didn't see peace. You're living in an occupied country. What does that mean? A, a superpower named Rome came in. And, and ruled the streets. They oppressed your people. But you understood a story that was far greater than that. That you, in fact, were anticipating God acting in history and bringing once and for all this redemption that, you, you were, you were, uh, that, were, that was whispered about, excuse me, hundreds of years before this time. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. But 2,400 years ago, there was a prophet named Malachi. And he promised the people of Israel that God would come and usher in this new way of life. And he would bring a Messiah. A Savior would come and bring freedom, redemption, and peace, and joy for all the earth to know so that you would be restored once and for all. And that right before that's supposed to happen, Malachi said that there would be a messenger that would prepare the way for this coming Messiah. Built into your history, built into the way you lived, into your culture, was this idea that God was going to come back and bring a Savior. And you, 2,000 years ago, waited anxiously for the Savior. From the time of Malachi to the book of Luke, there was 400 years of silence. 400 years of God not saying anything at all but unanswered promises that He will come again and restore all things to Himself. This is the type of tension we live in if we look at the book of Luke. If you're looking as a, a first century Jewish person 2,000 years ago, this is the, the, the hope that you had, that God would bring this Messiah. And the book of Luke begins with, with the breaking of silence. 400 years of silence. And, and the book of Luke, Luke opens up with a, a, an angel of the Lord coming to a man named Zechariah. I'm, I'm not going to read it. I just want you to look at it. We'll look at this another time. But in Luke chapter 1, 
uh, it talks about Zechariah. He's a priest and he's married to a, a, a woman who is from priestly descent. That just means both of those people are really significant in the first century. The, it just so happens that Zechariah, I'm just going to summarize this story, is, uh, is, uh, got selected to perform a worship ceremony in the temple in Jerusalem. Luke begins the story of Jesus, the story, the story of the gospel narrative, in Jerusalem, which is the heart of of the select promised land in the heart of Jerusalem, which would be the most significant place, the temple, with a significant person, Zechariah, a priest performing a worship service, married to a, a descendant of a priest. This is absolutely significant. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, you will have a child and he will be called John the Baptist or John and he will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Luke begins this story with, it's happening. It's on. Hundreds, if not thousands of years, anticipating the day of the Lord, the day God would come back. It begins with an announcement in the headquarters of Jerusalem, in the temple, in the most significant way, with the angel of the Lord appearing to, appearing to a priest, proclaiming good news, that the messenger preparing the way for the Messiah, is going to come. Absolutely phenomenal story. But I want to look at a different story this morning. I want to look at what the Christmas story is really about. But before I do that, I want to have two people tell you the story. I want them to read it to you. So if you want to close your eyes, you can. I'm going to invite them up. They're just going to tell the narrative of Mary. So let's listen to these guys as they read from Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are most highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who has said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The story of Christmas coming from Luke. Luke begins with this powerful announcement in a significant place called Jerusalem in the most significant place in that city called the temple with a significant priest and his priest's wife. As he's performing a worship ceremony, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, you will give birth to a man named John who will be the messenger for the Messiah. And then the second announcement comes. We're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth come from priestly descent. That's significant. But then, we're not told anything about where Mary's from. There's no lineage. There's nothing about her past. She doesn't come from priestly descent. We're not told her anything except that she's uh, betrothed to a man named Joseph. Jo- uh, you know, just in the first century, you, you would be betrothed by the time you hit puberty. So Mary's 10 to 13 years old. Mary is without lineage, without significance, 10 to 13 years old, a handmaiden in Nazareth. Nazareth is the most insignificant place you can imagine. It was, ne- was never mentioned in ancient literature until 125 years later after the story took place. Some scholars didn't know it, it, it was happening. It didn't exist until later on. We didn't know where Nazareth was. It's like Luke is saying in modern day context, a junior high kid working at Circle K in Barstow, is going to give birth to the Messiah. Part of the Christmas story is this. There is absolutely nothing significant about Mary at all. Luke is making it perfectly clear. This promised Messiah is going to come from someone who has no significance in society. Her only significance is her obedience and her willingness to follow what God asks. The story goes on, and I just want to look at a couple of things today. Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 29. Let's read this again. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I think that's... uh, that's a funny illustration. Mary was greatly troubled when an angel of the Lord said, You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then his first answer is, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. This, in the first century, is so electrifying. You've you, you got you to see what's going on. He says, uh, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. Jesus, the word Jesus, is the English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. Some of you might be shocked. Jesus' real name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It's where we get the word Joshua. It's been transliterated. And Joshua means Yahweh saves. Joshua means God's salvation. You shall give birth to a son, and his name is God's salvation. Later on in Luke, when they dedicate, after Jesus is born, when they dedicate Luke at the temple, do you remember this story where Simeon comes up to them? 
and says, I have been waiting to die so that I may see the Messiah. And his response after he sees the Messiah is, I have seen the salvation of God. The kid's name is God's salvation. How amazing is that? The story goes on though. And the angel has all this Old Testament imagery. Um, He will be great and be called the capital S, Son of the Most High. This is a declaration from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He's declaring that this is God's literal son. The, um, uh, the Lord God will give him the throne of his, uh, of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. This is an answer to 2 Samuel chapter 13. He's saying all that was promised will be fulfilled. This kingdom will never end. God's salvation, Jesus, will rule on this throne forever. The kingdom will never end. And then she asks, how will it be because I am a virgin? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The word overshadow is the same word we get from uh, Acts chapter 2 when, when the, uh, on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit fills the room and the whole, everyone starts speaking in tongues. It's the same phrase that's found all throughout the Old Testament to d- declare God's presence, His Shekinah glory. Nowhere in the Old Testament is God's presence, uh, as far as once the temple is built, anywhere except in the temple. And the angel says, God's presence, His Shekinah glory is going to come upon you, Mary, and you're going to give birth to a son, Jesus. This is absolutely significant. We've got to get this story. And it says, so the, um, overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And he says this, he, he confirms this, and your Elizabeth relative is going to have a child in her old age. She was barren, remember? And she who has said to be un, unable to conceive is in the sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Or another way to say that is, for nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. So we see in this brief little passage, we see Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 13 through 6. We see this idea of the Holy Spirit conceiving a baby comes from this this imagery in Haggai chapter 2 verse 6 through 9. You can go and look at those. This idea of the Holy Spirit coming and overshadowing comes from Acts 2 and all of the Old Testament. And when the angel confirms this about Elizabeth, it comes from Genesis 18 verse 14. That when Sarah was uh, was being laughed to get pregnant, when she laughed about it, she didn't think. He, the angel of the Lord says, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. The story that begins this Christmas narrative begins with two announcements. The first announcement is significant. It's expected. It's anticipated. Everyone in the first century would expect God to show up in the temple in Jerusalem during a worship service. That makes sense. But the second story is far more subversive than we can even imagine. God comes to attend a 13-year-old that has no significance in a place that has no meaning in the first century Judaism. To, to, to bring the promised Messiah as a baby to the world. The story of Christmas is subversive. And then the angel leads, leaves. 
And like what we do anytime we see an angel and then they leave, we sing a song. And so, at least that's what I do. Uh, just kidding. I've never seen an angel. Um, maybe that I know of. Uh, that's a funny story. Uh, okay. Mary's song. Let's, let's look at what she says. Some of these elements. I want to say, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been merciful and mindful, excuse me, of, of the humble state of, the, of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercies extend to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the inner, inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. We don't get this because we don't see the significance of the language. Mary is speaking as a response to what's happening in a timeless tense. In Greek, this is a tense that's used to describe something that is both a past, present, and future reality without differentiation. She is so certain of what God is going to do that she speaks of it as if it's already happened. And notice what she says. She recognizes that God delights in using her in her lowly state, in her poor condition, and finds favor over her. And she anticipates that God is going to do this in the future. That he will use the poor and the lowly, the insignificant, the weak, the powerless, to bring triumph and redemption for all people once and for all. That God actually will bring glory through his son by bringing it to a poor person without significance. This is the story of Christmas. It's called the eschatological reversal. It's the famous theologian phrase. It doesn't mean anything apart from this. One second, okay, Bill? Thanks. He says this. Basically, the story of Christmas is this. When the world says this, God says this. The first shall be last, now the last shall be first. Blessed are the poor, the meek, those who mourn, the peacemakers. The greatest in heaven is he who serves. If you want to find your life, you're going to lose it. When the world says power is over here, he says, no, power is over here. Those without power will have the power of heaven at their disposal, at their fingertips. That's the message of Jesus. And early on in the story, that's all that Mary is proclaiming in this response. That this is what God will do. That this is what Jesus' message 30 years later will be like. The Christmas story is simply this, is that God came in the flesh as a baby to save, renew, restore, and redeem what was lost. It's a story that says, I haven't forgotten about you. Thousands of years waiting for the Messiah, God says, I haven't forgot about you. There is healing to be had for those that are waiting desperately with brokenness. That nothing is impossible for those that have no hope. That I make all things new for those sitting in the ashes of the past. It's God saying to this place that we have a part to play in this renewal. 
The story of Christmas is absolutely phenomenal, yet it's simply insignificant. If we really understand the subversion of this story of this Christmas. I want to just make this point. He could have come as a warrior in the clouds. He could have come as a politician making rules and laws. He could have come in any way he wanted, but he doesn't. He announces the arrival of the Messiah to a junior high kid in Barstow working at Circle K. We don't get this. This is a glimpse of the story of Christmas. And the reason I say this is because look at the way we celebrate this story. That God comes to the insignificant and the poor and the broken and dwells with them, becomes one of them. And on that celebration day for centuries, we celebrate it by spending billions of dollars on stuff. We spend it by making lists of things we don't need. By filling our calendars with parties that make no sense. By living anxiously, finding the perfect present. By saying to our loved ones, if I really love you, I'll get a bigger, greater, best gift next year for you. We celebrate Christmas, this story of the incarnation, like that. I'm just speaking for myself. (laughs) Does anyone else feel a disconnect? Question is then, are you, which story are you living in? Is it the story that celebrates the Christmas by spending millions of dollars on stuff that you don't need, on engaging a culture of stress, survival, isolation, consumer-oriented, bigger, better, best? Or are you living a story out that redeems that culture from within? You see, it shouldn't take someone preaching from the pulpit to get it. It should take us living as radical disciples filled with the Holy Spirit that get it. I'm not condemning the culture. I'm simply hoping that there could be a generation that rises up to redeem the culture that we're in. Are you living in the moment? Um, Excuse me, let me just skip that. So the question I want, or for me as we move forward, um, forgive me as I piece this together, because as I look through this message, as I, I, I mean, and I'm looking at in a couple weeks talking about the shepherds, and I don't think we realize the significant announcement to the shepherds like we don't realize the significant announcement to Mary. And forgive me, because some of us actually live there, and I'm friends with you. But imagine if the king of the universe was being born. And let's just say Long Beach was the center of the world. The place that God decides to announce his son's birth is the people sleeping under the the overpass, living at the rescue mission for the next meal. That's where he goes on Christmas Day.
for me, my wife and I said, how do we engage our family? We're starting a new family that we've been married for four and a half years, almost five years. How do we, how do we take this story of the gospel and integrate that into our lives in a way that is real and tangible? Some of us have to live out a prophetic life. Some of us have to say, you know what, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to live so rooted in the story that I'm just going to reveal it. People like Shane Claiborne, who live in communal housing, that, that make their own clothes. And, and you, know, you, you know what I'm talking about. The people that really live out this type of life, that they don't make an income, they take a vow of poverty. But some of us need to really consider how do we integrate this into our life. For Alex and I, we have a huge family, giant families. It's massive. We decided we're going to buy four gifts and none for each other. That's really hard. Christmas morning is so much fun when you open stockings and you just get all these gifts. But we said to our families, we don't want gifts. We want to give whatever that money was that we're going to spend away to people that really need it. Maybe that's, maybe that's a practice you can do. I know that's hard. Maybe it's just saying, hey, we usually buy this amount. Maybe it's, it's a little bit less this year. Maybe it's, it's not about spending less. Maybe it's about doing more. Maybe it's about, hey, this year we're going we're gonna to sit down. We're going to read the gospel together as a family every night before bed. We're going to integrate the, story, the real story of Christmas so that we will never be confused when those, those shows come on, when those commercials come on and try to remind us of this deep down inside need for more, for bigger, better, best, for a cheaper price. Maybe it's just integrating the Word of God into your daily life. Maybe it's setting up some, some special traditions. For those of you that are young married couples, I don't know what it looks like. Honestly, this message was really for me just saying, I want to just tell you what it is and help us sit in the mess. Are you with me this morning? Okay. This is a heavy topic, huh? Again? Freaking A. Let's podcast the other one. Um, I, I, yeah, I felt like, yeah, it's like, for me, Chris, the, I, it feels like Christmas when the, when the off-ramp on the 405 is backed up to South Coast Plaza. When, when, when I go, go into Target and I see, I, I don't know, does anyone else feel like it's Christmas when Halloween comes now? Like, it's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely nuts. And the only way that it's going to change, it's not by voting. It's not even by buying less. It's by people getting it and redeeming culture from within. And so that's the mess I throw out there, however this sermon lands this morning. is what story are you living in? What can you do? You don't, you don't need me to tell you. Create a new tradition. Spend less. Give more. Worship. Be fully present with people. Don't just give stuff to them. You see, and I think I know, I, I, I see the significance of this. You see, we engage in a culture of chaos that rejects simplicity. And, and it's like the, the show or that movie, the Charlie Brown, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. You with me on this? You watch it, and what is that, that show? It's depressing. It's confusing. It's, there's mistakes, there's just chaos, it's stress, and, and it's just this exhausting thing until there's this existential cry from Charlie Brown. Does anyone know what Christmas is all about? Let's, let's look at this. This is such a great response. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? 
Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In the midst of chaos, a couple verses from the book of Luke centers the whole peanut gang to the meaning of Christmas. Maybe some of you don't have the opportunity to stand in front of a crowd to remind them of the meaning of Christmas. But maybe you can do it in a far more subversive way this Christmas. At your office party, at your family get-together, at your community group gathering, at your work, at your school. How can you redeem the culture with this true story of Jesus Christ and His birth? Which story are you living in? I want to challenge two things, a couple of things. One, I want to challenge you guys. Don't go into debt for Christmas. Very practical. Don't go into debt for Christmas. I think that radically misses the point. That Jesus came to free us of debt. Right? Just, just a challenge to those of you that, that feel like you need to keep up with everyone else. Second thing is, Think about giving time, not just finances. Give beyond ridiculous amounts of money away. We should do that as Christians. We should give over and above every time. We have 70 things left. Some of you already took a couple. Take a couple more. Let's, let's give as a church to that family in need, to all those families in need. Give beyond, but also think about giving time. Give time to your spouse, to your friends. The third thing is this. If you start new traditions this year, would you consider including strangers that don't fit your normal community? Not your family and friends. Would you including, include simply inviting strangers into those traditions? Share the gift of hospitality. How will you participate in spreading this peace to the rest of the world? We're going to have a time of worship. And this is what we're doing this season as, as we preach the word, as we recognize that this hits everyone in a different way. It hits me and my wife in a, a very particular way. It hits me differently from my wife. But as I reflect on this announcement story of, to Mary and her response of, may this be fulfilled into a song of declaration that God delights in using the insignificant, that actually nothing is impossible for God. That story is a story I want to share and live out. How can you invite God into helping you this season? Simplify all other stories to know this one. So I'm going to invite Jamie. Mickey, where are you at? Sorry. Come on up.
We're going to worship. There's a couple of things you can do. And I want to um, make this a little more participatory. I know it's a little dark and quiet and worship-focused, and that's great. Um, there are two fences, and uh, our arts team came up with a creative response. We're going to sing songs. Um, and I encourage you to, to be present. Church is not me uh, finished when someone's done talking. This is where we really engage as the people of God. I know we have stuff to do and places to go, um, but would you really settle in for the next 25 minutes or so, thinking and worshiping God fully? The fences are, there's paper around the fences, and you know, whenever God wants to make something significant happen or remind the people of God about what He does, He makes them do something with their hands. Ask any teacher. You want somebody to get it, they should, they should do it first. They should practice. I don't teach someone how to ride a bike by describing in a diagram the mechanics of bicycling. I let them bruise their knees. Hopefully I will when, when I have a kid. We put training wheels on it. Well, one of the ways we can participate in response is getting up, standing and singing, getting on the floor, posturing ourselves in worship, going to the fence, writing out what is it this year that you're going to do differently. What is a prayer for this year for your family? Who in your life needs to know Jesus? What's the story that you've been living out? Do you need to confess? Go to the fence. Write it out and stick it in. It can be anonymous. We want this to be filled up the next three weeks. Maybe your response today is going and collecting a bunch of those gift cards. But this is what this time is for. It's not to walk away and go to lunch because you had a great sermon. It's because this is where the people of God participate in the body. So let's do that, okay? So many options to choose from. Let let me pray for us and we'll let Mickey take it away. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, that you came as a baby. And God, that the story was not just for the, the churchgoers, the elite, those that have stuff. And it's it's not just for them, God, but it's that you delight in those that don't have enough, that can't seem to get it right, that keep messing up, that keep blowing out, that keep discovering that they don't think they're good enough, God, but you say they are. That the story of Jesus begins with insignificance. Thank you, God, that you came that way. I pray, Jesus, as we live as disciples in a a culture that worships stuff and more, that we can become a redeeming presence that tells a different story. Help us respond well this morning. Help us to worship. pray this in your name. Let's just take a few more minutes and just uh, allow that space for...